Are we twinning right now? Always trust the process. Welcome to Trust the Process. My name is Chris, and I'm the host around here. Today's episode features Devin Sherman Daly. Hi, I'm Devin Sherman Daly, and I'm an entrepreneur in residence here at the Martin Trust Center. A former senior managing director at Mass Challenge's FinTech program, Devin loves whiteboarding, her twin sister, archaeology, and helping students new to the entrepreneurial journey. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to be worried about cancer in the future. It's like <laughs> from the water or something. Yeah, that's know. crazy. That's crazy. Um, yes. So being an identical twin is an enormous part of my life and it always has been. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I think, you know, when you're younger and you're an identical twin, um, it's great, right? Like you have a built-in best friend for life. And that's definitely been the case for our whole life. Um, but it's also like it comes with its challenges too, you know, like you have to kind of, I think, work at a younger age to really carve out your identity. You're so genetically similar and then you have so many shared experiences. So you have to kind of carve out your identity and think about what makes you different, I think, at a younger age than, than non-twins. Um, but you have to do that in a way where you're not like overcompensating or caricaturing yourself. I also find that people who are twins get tired of talking about it, so I'm not going to dwell on it. Oh no, much. we love talking. Oh, you about like talking it. about it? Okay, good. I love meeting other twins. <laughs> I mean, it's a huge part of your identity, right? Um, so yeah, I, I love talking about being a twin. Okay, that's good. So the you know the other twins from T33, like every time I tried to talk to them about it, it was like, yep, yeah, we're twins. Yeah. Moving on. They were a little more reticent about it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, my sister and I love it. I, I, I think it does. It's very formative um, throughout all stages of life, being a twin, you know. So, um, yeah, I think it's like when I think of, you know, it's it. I do think it also kind of helps you kind of be on a team at a really young age and kind of figure out how to be a good teammate, a good team player. Um, and there's a real kind of support system that comes with that. Uh, but there's also like, um, an accountability factor too. You know, ever since my sister and I were really, really young, we're so naturally when we're together, grouped together. And so like, whatever we did, whether it was good or bad, you know, we were kind of like, it was a reflection on our sister as well. Mm. And so I think, um, yeah, there's a lot that I think being a twin teaches you at a young age when it comes to friendship and identity and uh, being a good team player, that kind of stuff. Do you have a particular kind of student that you find often reaches out to you for for advice in terms of like a, a mentor mentee relationship? Like, have you have you found that that certain people gravitate towards asking you for advice? Yeah, I think well, obviously the fintech startups, just because of my background, and and I love supporting the fintech startups um, here, and so always always help. Oh, always happy to help um, with that group, and then I think maybe the other group is just people who are like, I think people who are kind of just dipping their toes in, they have kind of a fledgling idea. They have a lot of doubt to your point over whether this is kind of the path for them, whether they're cut out for it. 
Um, and they just want to like talk that out and get into really early brainstorming. And I love early brainstorming. <laughs> uh, I get very passionate about it. And I love kind a, of- <laughs> What does a brainstorming, early brainstorming session look like when someone comes to do it with you? A lot of whiteboarding. Okay. <laughs> I love, uh, I love a whiteboard session. Yeah. In my very nerdy college days, I used to bring a little whiteboard to the library, which is probably something I should not admit because it's so nerdy. Um, but I'm very visual and, and I really do enjoy, enjoy whiteboarding. Um, but I also just enjoyed pumping up these, these students and saying like, Hey, like, you know, go for it. Like, what's the worst case scenario? You decide maybe it isn't for you or it's not the path you want to take or the idea has some stumbling blocks. What's the best case scenario? Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a real, it's a path you can really thrive on and an idea that really takes off. And so I, I love meeting with those students. Um, and, uh, hopefully they enjoy meeting with me as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, and, and, and also really like, you know, any, any students, I think we have a really kind of open door policy here at the trust center. So anyone can book office hours with us too. What surprised me the most about working here is the amount of not just, well, pr Primarily, frankly, funding opportunities for undergraduates, um, you know, accepting that just simply the amount of institutional offices that are like seemingly just designed to help mm -hmm. undergraduates do these kinds of things. Uh, number one, I was just wondering if you could talk about that ecosystem and sort of how um, you engage with it or how you sort of feel about it. Yeah. Yeah. I think MIT has a phenomenal um, kind of entrepreneurial ecosystem around it. And I think that there's huge positives that come with that, which is, you know, there's just a ton of support for students. Um, we work really collaboratively with a lot of the different centers, whether it's the sandbox or the engine or venture mentoring services. Um, so we, you know, we're always sending students to them or getting students from them. Um, and so it's super collaborative. It's really, really robust. I think one of the challenges is because it's so entrenched and there's so much happening, I think from a student perspective, it can be kind of hard to navigate, especially from like if you're new on campus and stuff. And so we try to really, really break that down for the students and make it easy for them to kind of say like, okay, this is a good starting point. And then here are some other options. Like if, you know, if you take our kind of foundational new enterprises class, like here's some really good places to go after that across campus. Um, and I think you have to be kind of saying the same thing over and over just because there's like from a student perspective, like there's so many distractions, not only from an entrepreneurship resources um, perspective, but also just like so much other stuff happening on campus. Um, it's all good stuff. It's just, you know, you want students to, to really kind of um, pursue a few things well and really kind of throw themselves uh, into those different um, classes and extracurriculars and opportunities, but it, it can be overwhelming. Hmm. And as someone who played Division I sports, I'm going to guess that you have a pretty good sense of like what it's like to be at a high um, performance school with these secondary responsibilities. Um, and then you start adding in social responsibilities and family responsibilities. How did you as a 18 year old come to terms with that? And how do you speak to students at MIT, you know, about, I think for most of their lives, they've been told like, if you get into MIT, it's a great thing. And I think a lot of them probably get here and are really overwhelmed. I'm assuming you had the same experience going to Harvard, right? Is like, this is such a great thing, but there are obviously always going to be difficulties. And like, how did you square that? 
Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, you know, I played soccer um, in college and I think soccer took up a ton of time, but on the flip side, it also forced me to get really structured and really organized early on. And I think that was really advantageous for just being able to like, you know, and then also kind of for better or worse, eliminated some choices. Like if if different courses or different extracurriculars didn't fit with your soccer schedule, you you had to unfortunately, you know, not pursue them. Um, and so it just helped me kind of like, yeah, re- really think really carefully about what do I want to dedicate my time to? And how do I come out of these four years being a really well-rounded person who didn't just do school and just do soccer, but did other stuff that I might not ever have the opportunity to do again, or might give me a new perspective and kind of excite me about a new area. And so that was like, ironically, having a sport that took up so much time actually gave me the kind of discipline I needed, I think, to spread my wings a little bit and, and make sure I was doing that. And I would say the same for the students. And, um, you know, I'm kind of, I think the fear I have with like students coming in and just having so much happening is um, just kind of um, doing, a, and, and it also depends on the student's style and preferences, but like doing a, a lot of things to a little degree versus kind of picking those two to three things that they're really kind of passionate about and kind of can throw themselves into and can continue to develop throughout their their four years. Talking about undergrads, I guess it's different with, with MBAs and PhDs and postdocs and everything. But yeah, I'm a big fan of just like trying to find those two to three things fairly early on and, and really kind of throwing yourself into them and being open to change if, you know, if, if it's not quite as exciting in year two or three as it was in the early days. But um, yeah, I think how to crack like college is like there's so much incredible resources out there. It's like, how do you take advantage of them in a way that feels really fulfilling to you in a way that doesn't completely burn you out? Either? Right, right. <laughs> Have you, are you, do you find yourself or would you call yourself outgoing or introverted? That's a really good question. I feel like I'm an ambivert, which is kind of a sellout answer. Um, but I love people and I always have loved people. And so I, and I love working in teams. Um, and so in that regard, I think I am definitely more extroverted. I love learning about people. Um, but I definitely have my like introverted ways. <laughs> too as well. So I think that's a big question that it seems like a lot of the undergraduates here seem to feel is that they feel that maybe their personality is not cut out for entrepreneurship. So the reason I asked that is to sort of um, pull out some detail about how people, particularly at the trust center, aren't uh, maybe don't see themselves as like perfectly aligned with like what a startup person could be. I was wondering, yeah. do you have a feeling for like any of your attributes that may maybe wouldn't like historically be aligned with that? Yeah, I feel like I think one one of the like bits of philosophy we teach at the Trust Center, which I really really appreciate and agree with, is that there's no kind of set personality or set. Um, traits that makes an entrepreneur. And so a lot of times in our teaching, we, we talk about the misconceptions of, of entrepreneurship. And some of those misconceptions are like, oh, entrepreneurs are always extremely charismatic. 
Um, and it's like, yes, entrepreneurs can be charismatic, but, um, you know, you don't have to be incredibly charismatic to be a successful entrepreneur. We actually think you have to be the, 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 the most important quality to have is to be incredibly disciplined. And, um, you know, we teach, you know, we hear a lot about those kind of lone wolf characters, um, that go out and are uber successful entrepreneurs, but we teach, you know, there's always a team behind that lone wolf character who's extremely complimentary and diverse and has different personality uh, traits and, and skill sets that are really making that startup successful. And so we go through all these kind of misconceptions. So like, that's the first thing I just share is like, I don't think there's, you know, there, we, what we say is like, there's not an entrepreneurship gene. You're not born an entrepreneur or not born an entrepreneur. It, it's very much um, something that you can learn to become. Um, um, but yeah, I, I think everybody's going to have those doubts around whether they're kind of up for the challenge, whether they're the right personality, the right skill set. Um, but I'm a, I'm a big believer that that shouldn't kind of hold people back here at the MIT community. And we have seen successful entrepreneurs from, you know, all walks of life and all sorts of personalities from the shyest person in the room to the most outgoing person in the room to, you know, the most impressive person academically to someone who maybe struggled a little bit academically. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think there's room for entrepreneurship inside all those. <laughs> yeah. I have questions about being an only child. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's like boring most of the time. Um, Did you have a lot of like cousins or? Not really. No, I was a pretty introverted kid anyway. I think it's mostly just you learn, you actually uh, uh, prefer or appreciate to be by yourself for a lot of things. Like I, I can't work with other people around really, mm -hmm. you know? Definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of. I mean, it's a lot to dig into. In oh, yeah. This. With only children. Yeah. You also are and just with twins. Like, I think. Um, we probably have a lot of similarities as well, because like what you were saying, getting grouped with your sister and sort of getting, having something pre-assigned to you, like whether that was her interest that gets pre-assigned to you or um, something that she does that people assume that you do as well. There's like a social expectation of what an only child should be. Yeah. Right? And I think that's what I got assigned with a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and then <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately for me, I kind of lived up to that. I was like, probably thought I was older than I was. So didn't get along with kids in my class. And it took a long time to realize that um, I was just being like obnoxious, you know, <laughs> and sort of like turn that around. I think I was 14 when I finally realized. I was just working on a podcast uh, and I interviewed an anthropologist who studies this really cool site in Peru where um, all of the architecture of the underground site is designed to create auditory illusions. So like you talk in one corner of the site and you can hear it in a totally different area cool. because of the way that they designed it. Um, but what kind of, I guess, what kind of sites did you work on or how did you get into that? Yeah. Topic? Yeah. It was actually pretty, um, pretty spontaneous and, and random. So I went to college and was really kind of bent on being a, a history major. I always loved history. I was really passionate about American history. Um, and I went and kind of randomly stumbled on this, uh, extracurricular class 
that was actually excavating Harvard Yard. And I didn't think much of it. I kind of, I was playing soccer at the time. I kind of fit nicely into my soccer schedule. It fit with like getting different requirements checked off. So I jumped into it and it came out like to be a total game changer in my life. And so the kind of background of this course was that um, Harvard actually had this 10-year period in the uh, 1600s where they educated uh, Native Americans. And um, they it was actually called the building historically, the, the Harvard Indian College is, is what the historical name was. And this was, unfortunately, it lasted 10 years and it all kind of unraveled as tensions with like King Philip's War and whatnot broke out. So it was a, a short but really formative uh, period in Harvard's history that no one really knew anything about. There was like really limited written records, very, very limited um, material, uh, cultural records left behind. And so the whole premise of the course was like, let's find out more about this. And the whole goal was to actually found the uh, discover the foundations of the physical building that the college was was housed in. And so I kind of jump into this course and I, I loved it because it, what's cool about archaeology is you're kind of splitting your time between being, you know, outside and excavating and then doing some really scholarly research um, on top of that as well. So it's like really just like diverse experiences. And so um, I dove in and my unit team we actually unearthed these really nondescript looking artifacts that were lead type. And um, we didn't think much of it at the time, but when we brushed off the surface, what was really cool about them, they're just like small um, little rectangular um, pieces of lead. But what was really cool about them is they actually had um, figures from the Algonquin language in them. And so we we're like, oh, wow, like what is this? And um, the teaching staff told us that it was actually lead type that went into a printing press. And what was really, really fascinating is that written records show that after the college was abandoned, it actually housed the first printing press in the American colonies. And that printing press... Um, produced the Eliot Bible in the Algonquin language. And so it was this first really compelling piece of evidence to show not only are we kind of in the vicinity of, of this college, but we might actually be like in the foundations. And so with that kind of um, really compelling piece of evidence and a lot of the other artifacts we unearthed throughout the, the semester and more written records that we compared them to, we were actually able to prove, you know, this is where the college was. If, if you've ever been to um, Harvard Yard, when you walk in, it's like right in front of um, uh, the Weld dormitory. And so it, it was like literally right in the middle of, of the yard. And I think that was also a really interesting aspect of the course, just because so much of like archaeology is, is community driven. You know, you want to get the community around you engaged and informed about this history you're, you're reconstructing. And so what was incredible about it, um, was, you know, not only that just these like tiny pieces of artifacts can can kind of re reconstruct history in that way, but we were excavating alongside the Wampanoag tribe uh, from Cape Cod. 
And to see just how emotional and proud and happy they were when we, when we were able to kind of say like, Hey, this was a real piece of, of Harvard's past and a piece of Harvard's past that should be studied and celebrated and also critiqued too, just because there was a real kind of missionary element to it as well. Do you find any sort of, um, Actually, I think there are probably a lot of corollaries between um, an archaeological project and something like um, what you've been involved with professionally, like starting an accelerator. Um, yeah. Way. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the thing that's been most prominent in what I've taken from anthropology and archaeology, and it's somewhat related to patients, it's it's being really, really comfortable not having all the information and the data at hand. And I think, you know, when, when you are doing archaeology, it takes a really, really, really long time to come up with a full data set, you know, no matter what kind of artifact or site or region you're focused on. And you have to be comfortable to know that there might not ever be a full data set because, you know, you can't unearth all the material culture. Um, there's big gaps in the written record. And so you do have to be comfortable, yeah, with, without all information at hand all the time and, and making really educated hypotheses and backing those up in a really rigorous fashion. And so that was, it's kind of like when the way I phrase it is like, I had a lot of comfort in working with limited data to better understand the past. And I think so much of my career has been almost the opposite of, of being really comfortable and working with limited data in order to better understand what's next and you know what's coming in the future. Uh, and a lot of the work I've done in, in the fintech space and um, is that, right? It's like, we don't really know what, where, what's going to happen in the world, what's going to happen in this sector. And a month, three months, three years. And I think having a comfort with that, um, I definitely took from my kind of anthropology and archaeology educational background. Mm. And in both and in both uh, situations, there exist frameworks that you can sort of use to provide a wireframe for the data that you do have, right? Yeah. I'm guessing that's, that's true. Absolutely. Um, what kind of frameworks were you surprised to find in the financial space that could help you predict something that you like the, the data that you had and the prediction that you ended up being able to find weren't necessarily connected, but you found a way to do that. Do you have a, yeah. I mean, I feel like this is a really good plug-in Chris, for the dis <laughs> disciplined entrepreneurship methodology we teach right. at the trust center. I think, I think so much of what you want to do when you're, you know, working in the tech sector and in different parts of the tech sector, like um, FinTech is, is you're looking to de-risk, right? And so like all of what we teach here at the trust center with the disciplined entrepreneurship methodology is like really kind of diving in and, and deeply understanding, you know, who is your customer and what can you do for your customer and what does that business model look like and iterating and getting feedback before you go out and launched a full-fledged product and create a business around it. So there's like a lot of fundamental stuff you do um, that sets you up for success and de-risks different kind of pitfalls that can get in the way of doing that. And I think in the fintech space, um, a lot of, um, yeah, there's, I, I think a lot of like what you have to do is kind of sometimes just create your own framework and your own processes in order to do that. And so 
that free, we actually created like our own framework when we launched Mass Challenge FinTech, which is the startup accelerator. Um, I launched as part of Mass Challenge, the big kind of traditional global startup accelerator that's based here in Boston. It was responding to different things we were seeing in the market, different things we were seeing from um, our corporate sponsors, different needs we were seeing from our startups. And it was like, how do we put these together and how do we create kind of like our own framework to de to basically drive results, but de-risk it for all those stakeholders as well. So a lot of times like it's a comfort in just creating those frameworks. I think what's what I've found most interesting about the discipline entrepreneurship curriculum as I've come to know it better is that it both um, has room for providing you a structure, but it also has room for you to be taking those overall ideas and creating your own idea out of it. Did you feel like you were successful at doing that at Mass Challenge? Yeah, I think um, so. So Mass Challenge is like big kind of traditional startup accelerator started by John Hawthorne in the wake of the financial crisis, really to make it easier for, for startups to grow and thrive. But we were seeing a few kind of big pieces of feedback. Um, and one was feedback from the startups who were kind of like, hey, I want more from you guys. Like, this is awesome when I'm early stage, but as I grow up and I'd still really love some help from you. Like, what could that look like? And then on the other side, we were getting um, a lot of feedback from different corporations. And the corporations were, were kind of saying the same thing. Like, what else can you guys do? Like, I love coming in and meeting these startups, but I love some, some support and like really working with them and in partnering with them. And so we launched a model that kind of accommodated those two pieces of feedback and was also kind of solving for a bigger thing that was happening in the market. We were almost seeing this kind of, um, you know, this surge in, in fintech startups at the time. And we kind of like, some people call it like the rise of modern fintech, um, which is a little funny just because like, if you think about fintech, it's been around forever. And like putting my archaeology hat on, if you look at like ancient Roman times, the way people recorded financial transactions could be considered a financial technology and product of the time. But we were seeing modern fintech startups um, rise up. And that was kind of being driven by stuff like the cloud and AWS and all these new innovations that were essentially making it a lot easier to get a fintech startup off the ground, a lot less capital intensive. And, and so from a big corporate, big company perspective, there was um, a lot of appetite to, well, at first, a lot of fear. Like, what does this mean for us? Do we compete with them? Do we collaborate? Collaborate? Like, what, what happens here? But then increasingly a lot of appetite to partner with the startups um, and vice versa. You know, and the corporates brought distribution and scale and expertise and capital and the startups are bringing an incredible nimbleness you know they're not encumbered by legacy IT systems they can move really quickly um, they're bringing um, cutting-edge technology they're they're bringing a lot to the table and so it did uh, it, it just seemed like okay this could be win-win well that's it for a very special episode of trust the process. This is a production of the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship. It is hosted and edited by me, Chris Burns. Executive production by Greg Weimer. See you next time. <laughs>